Good morning, Grace Church. So first hour, we were in the dark. We said, no, no power, no worries. We got the power of God. We got power in the word. And we were praising God for flashlights on phones and backlit screens. We got contingencies all over the place. Got microphones everywhere just in case the power goes off again. It's a privilege to open up the, God, the word of God with you today. Please find Romans chapter 9 in your Bibles. Romans chapter 9, we want to understand the word of God so that we would do the will of God. In Romans 9, we're in verses 14 to 18 today, it shows the righteous freedom of God. The righteous freedom of God, that God alone is God, and and that means that there's some things true about him that are not true about anyone else. It's beyond dispute, sovereignty means sovereignty, and that he preserves and displays the glory of his name. That everything he does is for his glory, that all his motives and all his actions are good and right and true. He is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, he is all-present. And that he is free of anything outside of him. That he's not asking our permission to act, that he is free of human willing and working. He is utterly free from any human input. He does as he pleases for his glory, and it is in his freedom that he sets us free. So if you're able, I want to ask you to stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read Romans 9, 14 to 18. We're actually going to look just at three verses today, and then in a couple weeks we'll look at the next two. But I want to read them all. This is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. It is powerful. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, And he hardens whomever he wills. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you, Lord, that you show forth the glory of your name always. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word, that we would learn of you, that we would bow before you, and that we would yield our entire lives to you and for your purposes. All for your glory, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. The point of the text that we are looking at today, in the context of salvation, this is really weird, not, not preaching in the dark. I really got used to it last, last service. It's really weird. I'm like, I'm seeing you, and you're like, you're looking awesome and everything, but it's like, wow, it's not dark. But the point of the text that we're looking at today, in the context of salvation, This is in the context of salvation. Remember that Paul starts the chapter being so grieved over those who were rejecting Christ. So in the context of salvation, the point is that God has righteous freedom to give mercy and to show compassion to whomever he wills. The idea is that God has come up with the best salvation plan, that everything God plans is good, and that the things that man plans are not always good. In fact, you think about 
the best plans you might have ever made and how maybe they were corrupted by someone else's uh, interaction or interruption. Now you think about it, a lot of plans we make are good, and a lot of things that man has done has brought about a lot of good. Uh, Hospitals, schools, science, art, industry, discoveries, literature, and so on. What happens is that mankind even corrupts the good things he does. And sometimes our, our best intentions literally blow up on us. I think of the man who invented dynamite, actually, how he, how he felt bad about the fact that it was used in ways he never intended. He actually regretted inventing dynamite. Let me tell you the story a little bit. Alfred Bernhard Nobel. He was born in 1833 in Stockholm, Sweden. And he mastered several languages. He, he, he knew chemistry and physics and poetry and natural, natural sciences and, and spoke five languages. While he was studying in Paris, he, he met Italian chemist Ascanio Sobrero, who in 1847 invented nitroglycerin. So this oily liquid explosive made by combining glycerin with nitric acid and sulfuric acid. And nitric, nitroglycerin was, was considered too unsafe to have any practical use. But his family, the Nobel family, they had these businesses in Russia and in Sweden. They said, we're going to look into this and see if we can find ways to, to make nitroglycerin um, helpful in commercial industrial use. And so as they began to do this, there were some tragic results because they're dealing with an explosive material. And so in 1864, Alfred's younger brother Emil and several others were killed in an explosion at one of their factories as they were doing these experiments. And he's trying to find a way to make nitro safe, basically. One of the experiments led to what was called blasting oil, which was a a mix of nitro and gunpowder. It resulted deadly explosions, one that killed 15 people. In 1867, he mixed nitroglycerin with diatomaceous earth, and what he found was that he could make a a stable paste that could be formed into short sticks that mining companies could use to blast through rock. And, And he patented this invention as dynamite. He actually named it after the Greek word dunamis, which is power. And so you think back to to Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So he names his invention dynamite, and it revolutionizes mining and, and construction and demolition. And they're able, I mean, railroad companies are able to blast through mountains uh, to open up, you know, uh, wide stretches of the earth for commerce and exploration and what have you. But what happens? All of a sudden, armies are like, we could use dynamite. And so they use it in warfare. There were dynamite cannons in the Spanish-American War. In 1888, his brother Ludwig died. And it was wrongly reported that Alfred had died. And then he found out what people actually thought of his invention and what they thought of him. Because one newspaper in France wrote this about him, the merchant of death is dead. Uh, he de- they described Nobel as a man who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before. That crushed him. He never intended for dynamite to be used in such a way. But even sometimes our best intentions, I mean, quite literally blow up on us. God knows the heart of man. God knows the heart of man, and so he's come up with a salvation plan to save those whom he chooses, and, and mankind 
has a hard time with the doctrine of election. As verse 11 tells us, God's purpose in election. We have a hard time with it. But it's the best plan because it's God's plan. And any plan that man comes up with is faulty. And you think about it. Anyway, Romans 9 um, and 10 and 11 are all about why some people are saved and some are not. The context is all salvation, and it, it comes from this deep love for people and concern for their souls. These are not chapters. These three chapters are not chapters to use as weapons. They are chapters to read as we weep for the souls of the lost. Beg people to turn to Christ. We're to preach and call people to believe. But we know that not all believe. In the context of Israel's rejection of Christ and the gospel, there is this question, why don't they believe? With all the privileges that they were given, with all the promises that were pointing to Christ, why did they push the Savior away? And so Paul gives his answers. And they're not easy. They're not easy answers. But they're inspired by the Spirit of God. And then... He moves on to answer anticipated objections and even accusations against God. He is basically defending God in Romans 9. He is saying, God is righteous. He's not unrighteous. He saves as he wills. He doesn't answer to man. Man answers to God. God's not on trial. Every human is on trial before God. I want to remind you, let's remind ourselves that the whole argument of Romans 9, 10, and 11 ends with a grand proclamation, the very end of chapter 11. It begins this way in Romans eleven thirty-three: 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Here's, here's the Spirit of God having Paul write, wow, God is amazing, and how unsearchable are his judgments. We can't figure it all out. And how inscrutable his ways. Everything God does is righteous. Everything God does is good. Well, let's remember the unrighteous things that mankind does. I know we don't want to go back. You know, we look in the mirror and we think about unrighteousness. And we think about our own hearts. And we think about what mankind does. Mankind decides and is deciding when it's allowable to take a human life. It's arrogant, it's immoral, it's unloving, it's denying that all souls are in God's hands. Mankind is deciding how they will treat people, denying the worth and dignity of many. Mankind is deciding who's acceptable or not, denying that we're made in the image of God. Mankind is deciding who's, who's right and who's wrong. Mankind is deciding morality, right and wrong, denying God's standards of righteousness and, and ethics and morals. Mankind is pronouncing his verdict with swift and unfeeling precision. It's like a scalpel on skin, and it's prideful, and it's painfully obvious, and it's, it's, it's the pushing of an agenda against God's truth. Mankind is high-handedly exalting himself above God, and we see it all over. Mankind says that he is the final arbiter of all that's acceptable, it's deluded, it's, it's depraved, it's, it's deceived. 
And mankind is, is blaming everything he doesn't like on God. Accusing him of evil. Accusing him of being unrighteous and unjust. Or, many people will just outright deny that God exists. But, but many who, who acknowledge his existence say that he's unjust and that he uses his freedom unjustly. They say things like, well, if, if God calls apart from works and before people are born, how can he be righteous? And what Paul is doing here is he's strongly defending the righteousness of God. He, he's strongly denying that anything God does is wrong. That what was decreed and decided and carried out by the hand of God is good and holy and loving and kind and just and merciful and gracious because God is. God is all those things. He is not unjust. He is not unrighteous in any way. God's electing purposes are revealed in Scripture. Notably, the heart of election is really seen in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8 where God says, you are a people holy to me. I chose you. I chose you to be a people for my treasured possession. Out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth, but it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. He's a covenant-keeping God. God's righteous freedom in electing purposes, in his electing purposes, are clearly revealed in Romans 9. He reaches the pinnacle of the glory of God at the end of chapter 8, and he says in those closing verses, you know, I am convinced that, that neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he ends that and then he bears his soul and how grieved he is over his people who are rejecting Christ, over his people who are lost. And he anticipates and answers several accusations against God in the process. And he proclaims in verse 6, God's word hasn't failed. You can go through all the Old Testament and show how God said something and he did it. God said something and he did it. His word does not fail. The answer to the problem in the first five verses of Israel rejecting and pushing away the Savior that their spiritual privileges pointed to is verse six, that all Israel are not Israel, <laughs> that everyone that are, that are from Israel are not Israel. And then last week we saw this, Romans 9, 6-13, it tells us that God determines before anyone was born whom he would save, that he predestined individuals to their eternal destiny. Again, verse 11 speaks of his purpose of election. And we saw last week that it is not based on what anyone does or is, that he fulfills his purposes by his word and call. This is why Paul is so confident that God's word has not failed, but is working out God's sovereign purpose even in the unbelief of Israel. But here's what we don't know. We don't know why God, on an individual basis, chose every single person he chose. You know, he's not saying, now Mike Shera, I'm going to tell you why I chose you and why I saved you. He doesn't give us that info. He doesn't tell you why he specifically saved you very specifically with the specific details of your life. But we know the ultimate Purpose is for his glory. We know he saves us for his glory. 
And that we know that from this chapter and elsewhere, God has total freedom to determine who he's going to save. Now, this would be judged by Paul's opponents to be unrighteous because they would say, well, wait, when a righteous God makes his choice, he must take into account the things that distinguish one person from another. But Paul doesn't share that narrow view of God's righteousness. In verses 14 to 18, Paul is basically freeing God from any charge of unrighteousness. That anyone who charges God in that way misunderstands him, that, that God is not on trial, that, that all mankind is. In verses 14 to 18, Paul says that nothing that he has said so far implies unrighteousness in God. And then he gives two examples from the Old Testament, Moses and Pharaoh. And we're going to look just at the example of Moses today, and then in a couple weeks we'll look at Pharaoh. But his argument is this, that God having mercy on those he chooses is an example of his righteous freedom. And he's asking the question, shall we conclude that God is not just? That, that it's normal to think that to choose some and not all is not fair. We think this way. And so is God being unfair? And Paul's answer is not at all. God's not being unfair. And what this passage shows, we're just going to look at three verses, but it shows three primary truths about God's righteous freedom, about his righteous freedom. Verse 14 starts this way. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, that's a question expecting a negative answer. The way it's formulated is the answer is going to be no. So verse 15 starts, by no means, no way. And, and the first truth we see here is that God always works for his glory in accordance with his truth. God always works for his glory in accordance with his truth. He says, is there injustice? That's the Greek word adikia. It's the Greek word for unrighteousness. It, it, it means that, it's, that you're against righteousness, but not just against righteousness, that you're against the truth. So it's a very strong word, and he's asking this question that is going to have a negative answer. The answer is going to be no. Is there injustice with God? Is God unrighteous? And he's expecting this objection that they would say, well, if God were to choose some people for salvation and pass over others apart from their merits or their actions, that would make God arbitrary and unfair. And so he's talking about this question of whether God would be unjust or he would ever be unrighteous. And this is not just the opposite of righteousness. This is the opposite of truth. This is someone who would conduct themselves contradicting God and the Bible. That, that, that God is glorious over all and that he is worthy of all honor and glory and praise and the person who's unrighteous would say, no, he's not. That the person who lives like this is said to be in the grip of unrighteousness, a prisoner of unrighteousness. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12, uh, speaking of the lawless one and then speaking of Christ's appearing to bring judgment on those, it says, who did not believe the truth but delight in unrighteousness. The opposite of believing the truth. Because unrighteousness includes deception. It, inc it contradicts truth. God doesn't deal in deception. God doesn't contradict himself. 
mankind does. In, in every act of sin, there's a little bit of atheism. I know better than God. I'm going to go outside the lines. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. They reject and conceal the truth that God is worthy to be glorified and praised above all creation. In Romans 2, verses 6 through 8, the last judgment is pictured, and it says that God will render to each according to his works. To those who from vain ambition disobey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he will give wrath and fury. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. See, love is a friend of the truth. Love delights to bring its actions in line with the truth. In Romans 3, 4 through 7, it says that our unrighteousness actually affirms God's righteousness shows God's righteousness, that even the truth abounds to his glory in our falsehood. The righteousness of God is truth. His unswerving commitment to do what he says, and that matches the reality of his infinite glory. And we need to understand this. We need to understand God's righteousness. Because here the question is, is he unrighteous to do what he is doing? And it is his unchanging purpose to display the glory of his name that is at stake. God cannot be blamed in any way for acting contrary to the truth of who he is. He is infinitely devoted to uphold and display his truth in all his actions. There is no unrighteousness in God. So verse 14 is telling us God always works for his glory in accord with his truth. There is no unrighteousness with him. And then secondly, verse 15 is going to show us that God is good in freely saving some. God is good in freely saving some. Verse 15 begins for, and it's introducing a, a scriptural support for Paul denying the idea that God acted unjustly in any way in choosing Isaac over Ishmael or Jacob over Esau. And, and, and he uses a quote, and he's quoting Exodus thirty-three nineteen. This might be the most important Old Testament verse in the whole Bible. For he says to Moses, and he's going to quote Exodus 33, 19, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And remember, the context is salvation. It's either those who have it or those who don't. He's speaking about those who don't have salvation, who have rejected Christ, who are outside of Christ. And remember what he says in chapter 10, verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. The context is salvation. And God is showing himself to Moses in Exodus 33, 19 to be abundantly merciful. Abundantly merciful. And also just in choosing freely those who receive his mercy. So he's quoting Exodus 33, 19. Answering the objection. Correcting the misunderstanding. Heading it off at the pass. But we must first understand Exodus 33, 19. We need to know the context of it. Because Paul uses this verse in the same context that it's given in the Old Testament. The same meaning. He uses it in its Old Testament context to make the New Testament point. He doesn't change it. He uses it consistent with its meaning. The context emphasizes mercy and justice as primary characteristics of God. So with Moses, we're talking mercy, and when we get to Pharaoh, we're talking justice. You go in, in Exodus 3 and then all the way to 33 and 34, it emphasizes not just his mercy, but his refusal to let the guilty go free. His right to choose the object of his mercy. 
God is abundantly merciful, and he is extraordinarily patient with those who rebel against him. This is what Romans 9.22 tells us. He, he desires repentance. This is what Romans 2.4 tells us, and Romans 10.21 tells us. And everyone who receives God's wrath deserves it. They justly deserve the wrath. That's what chapters 1, verse 18, all the way to the end of chapter 3 tells us. So mercy is primary here, critically important aspect of God's character, but he's also just, and he will by no means clear the guilty. And he is able to show mercy to some and remain just because of the atoning death of Christ, which is what chapter 3, verses 25 and 26 tell us. But what is the context of Exodus 33? So we're talking golden calf here, okay? We're talking gross immorality. We're talking rejecting God. And, and the people had rejected God, and so God said, I've rejected you. And Moses, in Exodus 33, is literally begging God to be with Israel even though they'd rejected him. And he cries out at one point, show me your glory. Here's what he's asking. He's saying, God, please show me who you are. Act for the glory of your name. When he says, show me your glory, he's saying, act for the glory of your name on behalf of your people. And here's God's response. He says, you will see my goodness in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So responding to the accusation, that God's sovereign election is inconsistent with fairness, Paul is showing how Exodus 33, 19 clearly indicates that God is absolutely sovereign and he chooses who will be saved without violating his other attributes. He determines who receives mercy. And the context is crucial. It is saying that the freedom of God in mercy is a manifestation of his name, of the glory of his name who he is, his character, his perfections, his glory. He has mercy on whom he wills. He is free. He is not controlled by anything outside himself. He is God. In context, his freedom is shown to be what it means to be God. He has righteous freedom. It's an expression of his name, Yahweh. When he says, I am who I am, and then he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He's saying, because of my glory, it's because of my name, it's because of what it means to be me. And Paul is talking in verse 15 about God's character. Who he is at the very core. Now you look at those words, and if you, if you hear someone saying, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, that Sounds like the words of a bully, doesn't it? Like, like I'm going to do whatever I want until you think about it. Mercy. What is mercy? What's the nature of mercy? Mercy is never an obligation. For someone to say that mercy is unfair is to say that everyone is owed mercy. Mercy is undeserved. Mercy is totally free. To say that God is unfair to only show mercy to some is actually contradictory. God owes no one mercy. God owes no one salvation. 
So he is free to give it to all people, or some people, or no people. It's his righteous freedom. John Stott, answering the question of whether God is just or not, says, well, that's mistaken. It's mistaken to ask that question. The basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice, but mercy. It's like this. Let's say there's a, a really wealthy person who says, I am going to pick 100 kids who are living in the inner city with no means of their own, and, and they have no money to go to college. I'm going to pay their way to college for 100 kids. Now, that person has got a lot of money. They could help more than 100 kids. They could send more than 100 to go to, to, go to college. So is that person unfair because they're only helping 100? No, and the reason why is they don't have an obligation to help anyone. They're giving mercy. So you can't talk about it being unfair. Verse 14, God always works for his glory in accordance with his truth. Verse 15, God is good in freely saving some. And what happens next is he draws a conclusion based on that verse. So in verse 16, he says, so then it. Again, what is it? It is the saving of some, the, the salvation of those who get saved. And remember, what Paul is dealing with here is that his kinsmen, many of them weren't saved, and he's grieving over it. So then, verse 16, it depends not on, and on is a heavy word here. It, it's not resting all on man. It's resting all on God. It doesn't depend on human will, our choice, our will, or our exertion, our power, our efforts, our works, but on God. So it's all resting on God who has mercy. So what verse 16 is telling us, really the third truth, is that salvation depends on God's free will and works, not ours. That nothing originating in humans Either our will or our work, or our desire or our efforts, influences God's decision to show mercy to some and not others. When you see those words in verse 16, so then, Paul's drawing an inference. He's, he's bringing this together. And he's saying, now let me tell you what we learned from this verse, what we learned from Exodus 33, 19. The context emphasizing God's right to decide how to give mercy and Paul's denying that anything within a particular human being can change that. Jonathan Edwards' greatest work was known as The Freedom of the Will. He wrote it in 1754. It examines the nature and the state of man's will. And he explains that man's will is fallen and in need of God's grace for salvation. Now he wrote this large, in large part in opposite to a man named Daniel Whitby, who was a minister in the Church of England, who in 1710 wrote this. It is better to deny foreknowledge than liberty. And it is better to say that God does not know the future or that God does both know the future and not know the future. In fact, Edward's work, this was the whole title. This is the title, the full title. And inquiry into the modern prevailing notions of the freedom of the will, which is supposed to be essential to moral agency, virtue and vice, reward and punishment, praise and blame. And his text was Romans 9.16. It is not of man who wills. When you see that term who wills in that verse, what it's telling us is salvation is not initiated or completed by human choice. You know, even our faith is a gift from God. 
And then when you see the words who runs, salvation isn't earned by your works or your efforts. The only other time Paul is using the term the will is in chapter 7 of Romans, verses 15 to 21, about the will of man being, being in bondage to sin. Seven times he uses it there in those, in those short passage. How the human being without the Spirit of God finds doing the good to be impossible. Try and try as you might. We see in Romans 8 that the person who wills or works apart from the transforming work of God's Spirit can only will and work in ways that bring upon God's wrath rather than mercy. The sinner being a sinner doesn't have the moral freedom to choose Christ. Is God holy and righteous? Yes. Can God sin? No. God can't go against his nature. Neither can sinners go against their nature, and their nature is infected by sin. How sinful are we? Did the fall affect every aspect of us, including our wills? Yes. And I believe that Romans 9 is answering that for us. That in salvation, God is free to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He is God. We are not. And his freedom is not bound or subject to the autonomous will of man. That God is in control, in charge when it comes to our eternal destiny. We're talking here about the free kingship of God. God freely doing as he pleases without getting permission from us or anyone else. Now, what would be a better plan? I, I thought about this often. I thought about this often when I'm reading the Bible thinking, you know, just read that passage, and if we had written that, we would have made ourselves look a lot better. But what would be a better salvation plan? And sometimes I think we, can, we think, well, I could have come up with a better plan than God or, or make his plan more, seem more palatable to the masses. But isn't it interesting that we don't gravitate in those plans we make up to being more God-centered, we become more man-centered. And every plan of man is always coming up with ways that are, that are bound by works. They're always works-oriented. And God's plan always succeeds. He's going to save whom he will save. Salvation depends on God's will and rests on, on God's character. And he wants us to grasp that he does what he promises. Verse 6 is driving this argument. The word of God has not failed. Trace it through the whole Bible. God's word doesn't fail. Now, what kind of effect should that have on us? What kind of effect should that have on us? And how did this help the church in Rome who heard this first? And how does it help us today? I want to give us some implications. How we can learn and grow from Romans 9. What should it drive us to do? I'm going to give you three implications. Number one, it should drive us to God-centeredness. And I think we can all benefit from having an increasingly higher view of God and his word, can't we? I want us to have the highest view of God as believers and as a church because God has the highest view of himself. God doesn't have a low view of himself. Scripture portrays the highest view of God. And if I'm going to err in any way, I want to, I want to err on, on the side of people thinking, wow, you're giving God more credit than he deserves. And I'm just going to like stand there and just kind of go, hmm, can we actually give him more credit than he deserves? I think we give ourselves more credit than we deserve. And understanding God's ways is, is going to take careful attentiveness 
through the word of God, to let it speak louder than any voice. That we go with the bare word of God because the power is in the word and the power is in God. The power to save and transform isn't in us, you or me or anyone else, but God and his word. And that we believe that God works in the hearts of his people by his inspired and inerrant and infallible word. And that God has spoken truth we need. It's a, like a powerful reactive agent. His, his word does its work in us who believe. It's his instrument of revelation. It's his instrument of, of salvation. It's, it's his instrument of sanctification. I'm not sure if I told you this. I probably have. But I, I grew up as an unbeliever in a church that almost literally threw away the Bible. I mean, seriously. It was figurative, but it was almost literal. It was basically anything goes, like, you don't have to believe the Bible. It really can't be trusted, and, and Jesus isn't God, and, and you can just kind of come up with your own stuff. So as a believer, I want to have the view that gives God most credit and has the highest view of him. Now, I realize that navigating Romans 9 feels like hugging a whale, right? Like, how are we going to get our, mind, our arms around this, right? Uh, there's a lot that is very clear. There's a lot that isn't. Uh, we need to take God's word as it stands. We don't want to twist it. We don't want to deny it. God is not on trial. We are on trial. Uh, God shouldn't be measured by human standards. All those things we know. Uh, God doesn't fit into our preconceived ideas. Uh, God's word is to shape our ideas. And, and I'm constrained by the scriptures, as you are, and what we believe them to teach. Um, I... I will say this, I don't think I have the only view. But when you, when you come to a conclusion about what the Bible says, what you want to make sure is you didn't come up with a new view. Okay, that You're coming up with a view that the historic Christian church has held. And, and maybe not everyone, but the majority. And, and I don't hold my views because I read someone's book or, or because you know, I, I got influenced by someone. I, I've read the book now. You have read the book, and maybe you come to a different conclusion. That'll be part of my next point. But let me just say, you need to be convinced as you study the book. Not someone else's book. God's book. So the first thing I think we, this should drive us to, Romans 9, is a higher view of God than we presently hold. That we increasingly have a, a God-centered view of life. Number two, it should drive us to Unity as believers, as a church. And I think we can all benefit from fostering deeper unity and seeking to understand what our brothers and sisters in Christ are, where they're coming from and what they're thinking about. And that we can all admit we don't know everything and that some things are difficult to understand. And that there is some ambiguity that we can't fully explain and, and we're okay with what scripture doesn't explain. And, and I would just tell you this, if you're, if you're struggling with the ambiguity, don't let the ambiguity threaten your emotional status. I mean, I've studied all the views. I don't know all the views perfectly, but I've studied all the different views. And I'm going to give you what I'm convinced of. And I'm going to tell you where it, where, where it doesn't say. Like, it doesn't tell you why specifically you got called. Like, specific, specific. It tells you the big reason why, but for the glory of God. But you need to be fully convinced in your own mind what you approve. You need to be fully convinced from the word of God what you approve. And, and I think we can all admit emotion clouds us all. We gotta recognize the issues. We're gonna come to different conclusions at times. Acknowledge though, acknowledge this. 
when God spoke the word, and it was written down, he meant one thing with everything he said. He's not trying to confuse us. He wants us to study the word of God in depth. He wants us to, uh, like 2 Timothy 2.15 says, study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightfully dividing the word of truth. We need to be working hard at the meaning. We need to be working hard at the intent that was originally there and the context. But we also need to acknowledge that everyone has predetermined viewpoints and we must be under the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Let God, let God in his word do surgery on your heart and let it change you. Let it interpret you. Let it guide you. Let it reorient you. We don't understand everything, but we believe that God is God. And so what we do is we, we do what is called exegesis. We read from and get the meaning out of the text. We don't do eisegesis where we read a meaning into the text. So we say, what does it say? What does it mean? This is how I see it. I studied it. I, I'm, I'm praying through it. I, I want to discern what God wants us to hear in his word. I don't want to fit God into my preconceived ideas. I, I want his word to shape my ideas. And I say all this because I know what happens. We gravitate towards people who agree with our ideas, don't we? And, and, and that make the most sense to us. But what I want you to see is that this is not about people agreeing with our ideas or what makes the most sense to our mind. It is about what does God's word actually teach? That it is possible for us to know taking the word in context, looking at the grammatical, historical evidence to discern a meaning of a text. And, and that God had one primary meaning he was setting forth. He wasn't trying to confuse us, though we all do a really good job of confusing ourselves. So we work hard to get to the core of what the Bible is teaching and stand with the historic Christian church through the ages. That doesn't mean we'll all agree. What it means is that someone is wrong and God will be the judge of that. I think you know me well enough. You've heard, if you've, unless this is your first time you've been at Grace, but I'm going to state the case strongly. Part of it is because of that background I came from, that before I was a believer, everything was up for grabs, and the Bible wasn't respected, and the Bible wasn't adhered to. But I just want you to know, I understand that we see things differently, and we understand things differently. And that many sincere and intelligent Christians differ when it comes to these things. It doesn't make us all right in our views, but God is big enough to deal with our views and our understandings and our misunderstandings of his ways. What you don't want to do is overstate the case and you don't want to understate the case for what God is doing. You want to rightly divide the word of truth, handle the word accurately. And by the way, God has not called us all to figure everything out. God has called us to obey him. His clear instructions in the word. By the way, I am not going to say things just to make you happy or just to make you like me. I'm going to say what I'm convinced of and then you test that by scripture. I'm going to preach what I firmly believe God's word teaches. You might come to a different conclusion. But you need to have biblical proof, not feelings. This is how we understand it. Do our best through study and prayer and wrestling with God to understand what he's saying in the word. That leads to unity. Just know we're called to live in unity in the body of Christ, even if we see things differently. And the third implication, the last implication. The things of Romans 9, the things of, of, of God's sovereign election, 
ought to drive us to more fervent evangelism. That we can all benefit from a growing fervency to get the gospel to everyone. Now, I remember back in seminary, I was in seminary in the mid-80s. I went back to 1985 and I wrote a paper and it was on how a firm understanding of the doctrine of election leads to more evangelism, not less. The righteous freedom of God brings in the most unlikely of people into the church. So we don't give up on anyone. I'm glad people didn't give up on me when I was not a believer. But we must grieve deeply for the lost and pray for them and beg them to turn from their sins and trust Christ. And that we must be willing to make sacrifices to get the gospel to the lost. Because if you're a believer, you've been humbled under grace. And these truths in Romans 9, they bring us down to ground level together. Under God. Nothing is because of our deserving or our wisdom or our superiority. It humbles me to know that I didn't save myself. And that now the worst of sinners such as myself can actually be saved. I want to share the gospel with everyone. Knowing that God has salvation settled actually takes the pressure off of me. I don't have to be all creative and and twist arms. I can just serve God's purposes unafraid and give them the word of God and let God open hearts to the gospel message. I don't have to be the most gifted evangelist ever, but I need to be an obedient evangelist. And so must you. I'm, I'm, I'm free, you're free to give out the gospel without fear and feeling like you have to do all sorts of things to get them to believe. It, it actually tenderizes my heart towards unbelievers to know that I, I gotta see them with compassion. God could save them. God could save them today. God could open their heart to the gospel. I'm not gonna focus on how they're acting right now or if they're good or if they're bad. They're just someone who needs to hear the gospel. God will do the heart work. In closing, let me just say this. God, in the Bible, tells us how he saves. It's by his sheer mercy and grace of his own will with no worthiness or work of man in view. And he tells us how we're to reach people with the gospel. By preaching the gospel of the grace of God in Christ and calling people to believe. Romans 10 tells us this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, I love this verse, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So how do we justify all of this? How do we reconcile it? You leave it in the infinite wisdom of God. And this we know. Go out with the gospel and tell everyone to follow Christ. Amen? Lord, thank you that that no one is going to hell who wants to be saved. 
Lord, we, we are, we, our hearts are crushed over so many people we know that are not saved. And, and we, we know that your sovereignty in, in election and mercy does not turn us into robots. You have chosen that we should choose. Our, our choosing and your choosing are not on the same level. They're on different levels. Your choice is above our choice in every way. Thank you, Lord, that you have willed that we would will to be saved. Thank you, Lord, that we, we learn your ways in your word. And thank you, Lord, that you, you save us. And thank you that you send us out with the gospel. And we pray that you would be honored. You would be glorified in our hearts, in our lives, in our homes, in this church. Here and to the ends of the earth. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.